This is the Improve Photography Podcast, episode number 218. Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Improve Photography Podcast. Today, I am joined by the the chief photo taco himself, Jeff Harmon. Hey, Jeff. Hello, Jim. Well, we uh, are going to go through kind of a random random <laughs> selection of things in today's episode you know when they leave it to just me and you jeff we can have all the fun we want so <laughs> and you know it's going to be nerdier than normal yeah that's right um <laughs> and it this is going to be a nerdier than normal episode but it's all really kind of interesting stuff mostly centered around uh around lightroom and photoshop but also some interesting camera system stuff let's just get nerdy so topic number one, what is missing from your camera system? Today on improvephotography.com, I published an article called Seven Drawbacks to Shooting Fuji Cameras. Now, I don't need to tell you, uh, since most of you have been listening for a long time, uh, that I love my Fuji cameras. However, no camera system is perfect. And so what I wanted to bring out in this article is what are the things that I don't like about my system? And Jeff, I want to ask the same question of you, uh, just so that you can kind of uh, be aware. Because a lot of times, all we hear is the fanboyism, all the hype about what we love about our cameras. And sometimes we don't hear the, or people aren't willing to share the things that, okay, my system isn't perfect kind of thing. So a couple for mine, and then I want to hear yours, Jeff. Okay. First of all, number one for Fuji, I, I consider it to be the Achilles heel of the Fuji system, is the 10 to 24 millimeter lens, which is a shame because it's also my most used lens. Mm. It is not weather sealed. It's reasonably sharp is what I'd call it. It's, it's pretty sharp on the long end but not as sharp on the wide end. Now that's anecdotal. I haven't done all the lab testing of it yet, but just I, I've noticed on some photos that like, I know I shot it right and it just a little soft. Um, so that's, that's really frustrating to me since I use that lens so much. And I, I was even thinking like, man, am I going to have to jump ship? Because I looked at the lens roadmap for Fuji and there was nothing on the horizon to, to give me hope, you know, of a 10 to 24 Mark II. But fortunately, there are rumors that we're soon going to see from Fuji an 8 to 16 millimeter f2.8. And angels sung in heaven <laughs> and everybody got free tacos. It was like, I was so happy when I saw that news. So I am anxious for that to come. Uh, to come. It was uh, very welcome news. So that's my number one Achilles heel of the, of the Fuji system right now is that wide angle lens. How about you? Your number one thing, you're shooting the Canon 70 Mark II. What's your number one Achilles heel for somebody that would consider switching or who's somebody who's on that system? Uh, probably the dynamic range. Oh, okay. So tell me about that. So, uh, it becomes even more apparent. I mean, in landscape, you can overcome it in a lot of ways. There's lots of things we can do to overcome kind of a, a deficiency in the sensor with dynamic range, but so, capturing the brightest brights to the darkest darts, the, the range of, of tones, um, the, the ability of the Canon sensors to capture a really wide range of those tones is more limited than the Sony sensors, like in the Nikon system or in the Sony cameras themselves. Yeah, so like if I'm taking a picture of um, a, per a person, my wife standing in front of, of a mountain and it's at sunset behind her, 
uh, you know, we get a little bit of light sp spilling over to the mountain. How much of that mountain is just complete black and how much we do we retain detail? And what about on the front of her face? You know, do we get right. any detail there or is it just does she go to total silhouette? And this right. is this is the type of thing you hit on an important one, Jeff, because this is the type of thing that we don't have good data from. You know, usually when we see a review of a of a camera or a lens, they talk about, you know, much more technical things that are easier to quantitatively test. And and dynamic range is a little bit of a qualitative thing. It may do really well in some tones and less well in others, uh, etc. And so you don't see that often in, in camera reviews, but it's a big deal. And the, the place where I've had it be more of a problem, because like I said, in landscape, you can do a lot to overcome it. Even in, in a lot of portrait situations, you can do a lot to overcome it. But in high, in situations where you have to go really high ISO, like sports shooting, that's where I have seen it be a larger problem. When I have to crank up the ISO all the way up to something like 10,000, it's not necessarily just because it's the crop sensor I'm shooting. Even on full frame, the, the Canon sensors are not as, uh, they don't capture as wide a dynamic range then when you crank up that ISO, that also affects the dynamic range. You get even less. And that's when it starts to really be a problem. You, you really lack detail in the sports photos because of the, the missing dynamic range. And there's nothing really you can do about it. Yeah, and it's a big deal because, I mean, think about how much of our time in Lightroom and Photoshop is spent really just working on dynamic range. You know, you yeah. get a photo and a landscape photo in Lightroom, and usually the first thing you're going to do is drop the highlights, bring up the shadows. You're trying to expand that dynamic range from the raw file. And and there are some cameras that do this exceptionally well. If you look at the new Fujifilm GFX 50S, that's their new medium format camera. Woo! Incredible <laughs> dynamic range. Right, right. Wow! Some of the tests that I've I've seen on the dynamic range are just incredible. Um, and the Sony A7R2 is extremely good at it too. Um, and that's one thing that, wow, that gives you a significant advantage, especially for landscapes. You know, for portraits, yeah, it's good. But for landscape, oh man, that dynamic range is a big deal. Yeah. Okay. You know, the, the one other thing that I wanted to say real briefly, because it's sort of a follow-up from the, I think two episodes ago, that's Canon Flash. <laughs> so you remember you talked about the second cur curtain sink a, a couple episodes back. Yes. Um, I have done a whole bunch of looking into it. Cause I was like, that can't be right. That, that can't be a problem. And it sure enough is it's a big enough problem on all lines of Canon cameras. It's a massive complaint. And as I've looked into it has been something I've seen people have switched camera systems just because of their, the way that they use flash. Um, so second curtain is one of the things that is very difficult to make happen in a Canon system. So this but overall, means, this means oh, that you, you're, you open the shutter and then just right before the shutter closes is when the flash fires instead of, you know, flash fires as soon as the exposure begins. And the yep. advantage is that if things are moving around, it feels more natural because the frozen part of them where the flash has popped is at the end of the exposure where they're moving to and not like at the start where they were, it's frozen and then a blur in front of them. Right. But the complaints go way past that. There's lots of people that is they've gotten into flash in a really technical level, whatever they're trying to accomplish with the various flashes, the way Canon does flash 
does not lend itself well to more technical types of flash photography and people change systems just to get to, to have a, a better ability there. So that's another one that I would, I would is kind of a deficiency in the Canon line. Yeah. It seems like it wouldn't be a problem if you're using proprietary Canon flash and this right. smells to me like Canon has just grayed out that second curtain for a YN 560 just to make you shoot Canon flash. I, yep. I can't say it for certain. I don't know the technical details, <laughs> but I can't imagine any reason why that wouldn't work. I think they've just done it to try to lock you in. And that's frustrating. But we did talk about this a couple episodes ago, and I never heard any follow-up from any, from any of the listeners. So if you if you do want to test your camera, a Nikon, a Sony, a Fuji, an Olympus, or whatever you got, see if you can turn on second curtain sync when you have a YN560 on. My thought is it's just Canon, but I, I can't confirm that. So I'd, I'd like to hear from people. All right, my second second uh, complaint or whatever we want to call it, imperfection, <laughs> let's go with imperfection, is no GPS on the Fuji. Canon is doing a really good job at implementing GPS on their cameras. That is excellent. Not all of them, but it's doing more than most than most manufacturers are. If you actually look at the, the list of cameras that can geotag, it's not that many. And this is a cheap chip. This is like, God, ah, so easy that they could that they could implement this. Now, if you shoot a DSLR, a Nikon, or a Canon, or or a Pentax, whatever it is you're shooting, they make external geotaggers that you put on your hot shoe, and with just a cord, it it puts the GPS information in the photo, so you'll know where you took the picture. On Fuji, there's no such external one, at least for the newer cameras, you know, the X-T2 or the X-Pro2. Uh, there were some a few years ago for some older ones, but there's nothing, nothing. The only way to do it is if you get the GPS information some other way and you include it. So that if you use the Fujifilm app and you connect to the camera via Wi-Fi, then the, the camera can geotag grabbing the data from the, the camera. But that's just really clunky. I, I couldn't see myself going to that much effort. Then the other method that I use is I just, wherever I go, I try to remember if I want to log a photo spot. I take a picture with my cell phone because my iPhone is going to grab that GPS information. And then I can copy and paste it over uh, just in Lightroom in the library module. I go to metadata and I just literally copy from my cell phone photo and I paste in the other photo. That's extremely important to me because of the really good photo spots app coming out and they're hundreds, thousands of locations that I've shot over the years that I've gone back and tried to add them to the database. And I can't always remember exactly where it was. <laughs> and so that's, uh, I would really like to see that for Fuji. All right. Any other, any other, uh, imperfections with the Canon system, things that, that make you look longingly over the fence? Um, just better wireless overall. The uh, the 5D Mic 4, uh, according to Nick anyway, has really made some big improvements here. And I think maybe the ADD has it as well. But uh, the the weak wireless add-on card that they have for the 7D Mark II is terrible. It just It's not even worth using. And then uh, overall, kind of the wireless has been hit and miss. It mainly miss until those very most recent camera bodies. So yeah, wireless capabilities. Uh, I would love to have much better wireless. Very cool. 
Well, I, I wrote a lot more things on this article. Seven drawbacks to shooting Fuji, Fuji cameras. You can check it out on improvephotography.com. I also posted an article about the 16 benefits uh, that I've seen of shooting mirrorless cameras. Uh, just to kind of see some of the things that I've been liking and, and not liking after spending almost two years now on mirrorless. Well, thank you for sharing that with us, Jeff. I want to give an update on really good photo spots. I had really wanted to release the app in March. That was my original goal was to get it out in March. And it's just not going to quite be there. Jeff and I have both been playing with uh, with the beta of it. It's really coming along in terms of the, the feature set and the things that are in the app. The features are almost all built out. There are very few things that just aren't working yet in terms of features. But I want to give plenty of time to address some more bugs. I, I don't want to spend, you know, this has been a two-year project. Uh, a two-year <laughs> right. project. I don't want to release it until it is fully baked and ready for prime time. And so right now I'm looking at closer to a May launch. Um, I, I feel confident that before June we're absolutely going to see it. I'm wondering in the back of my head if we can get it out in late April. Uh, but we'll see. Uh, the developers are doing really good work. The, it's, it's, I, I'm very happy with it, but, uh, but it's going to take a little bit more time. What, what have you thought with it as you've played with it, Jeff? Yeah, very, very promising. I, I don't think people understand what it takes to build a mobile app. It's not, oh. it's not like it was all, you know, 10 years ago where you could put something out fairly quickly and, and not have to be worried about uh, extreme use cases and, and all of the different versions of the phones that are out. There's so many things to be concerned with now. Building an app is far from trivial and not cheap. Nope. It's an expensive <laughs> endeavor. Believe me, I and noticed. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, as I've been playing around with the beta, very excited about the functionality. It's, it's going to be very cool. Uh, it's making progress, like you said, Jim, and, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be really fun. The thing that I'm happiest with on the app is the thing that's the most important. The data that we that you'll find in the app from day one, just what's already in there, is really good. I, I did a, a long series of tests today, just testing dozens of different cities around the world. You know, I test London. I just, you know, search London and say, okay, I'm in London. I just got this app. What am I going to find? You know, is this going to be worth my time? Is this going to be something I'm going to be happy with? And man, there are like 45 locations within, a, you know, 100 miles or so of, of London or wherever. I mean, I, I searched all every city I could come up with, you know, from Ireland to, you know, Canada to Africa and Australia, everywhere, <laughs> all the cities I could think of. And everywhere I searched, I was finding really good results. Um, and so I, that's what I'm most excited about uh, and that I was most worried about in building the app is that we would build out all this awesome functionality, but if somebody opens the app and they don't have a good experience the very first time, if they don't find good photo spots, they're out, you know, yep. <laughs> that's it. And so I, I'm really happy with what we've been able to put together. I had an awesome team of some listeners of, of this podcast uh, who I paid to to do thousands of hours of research and putting that together. And, and I'm very, very impressed with that. So some pretty cool stuff coming out. It's a really server heavy app. 
Uh, what that means is, you know, you can't download the entire database of photo locations and all of the accompanying pictures onto your phone. It's huge. You would not want all that data on your phone. And so every time you do a search, it's got to go to the server. It's got to go to my the computer that I pay that Microsoft makes this server that's going to send you the information, much like how when you go to a web page, the web page isn't on your computer. You're getting it off the server. And so it's an expensive app to run. Uh, you know, ongoing costs are high on this app. And so my hope is that the ads that are in the, pre, the free version will at least come close to covering the expenses of, of the server for free users and then that the premium users can fund further development so that uh, I can keep paying developers to make it even better and better over time. So uh, I am excited about it. I think we're looking at close to a May launch now. All right, Jeff, we saw in the news this week, deep photo style transfer and whoa, it was jaw dropping. <laughs> Tell us about this new tech. Okay. So th this is very much in the research stage. You're not going to see this rolled out to Photoshop or some other tool anytime soon. Uh, they're, they're looking into it. It just looks extremely promising. And the basic thing is researchers have gotten together. Adobe's been involved and, and a whole bunch of other university resources and, and researchers. And they are coming up with this, this thing where they want to be able to have two pictures added together to form one. Not, not like HDR where you, you have like highlights and shadows of the same scene and then you're trying to merge them together to, to make a, a nice high dynamic scene. Now this is more like two completely different photos, two different cities or two different locations or whatever it is maybe one was taken in the middle of the day and then you have a nice blue hour. That's one of the examples they have in the, in a document that they published one that's a uh, middle of the day, one that's blue hour looks really pretty, has nice yellow lights in it and all of that, that you can think of, of a, a nice cityscape at the blue hour and two totally different cities, just one, two totally day, different cities. And then what you can do through this software is kind of say, I want you to make my, middle of the day ugly photo <laughs> look like that blue hour photo of the nice city that's there. And it just applies that styling to the photo. So that's why they're calling deep photo style transfer. You're trying to take the style from one photo and apply it to another. Um, so it would be like a really, you could take like a, a Nick Page landscape <laughs> and try to apply the style that he gets out of a whole ton of of photo processing and, uh, and apply it to your own landscape and, and see how it comes. That would be kind of the idea anyway. And uh, very, very cool kind of thinking because it's very different than most other post-processing you have today. And there's, uh, there's a, a research paper that's been published by this joint research team. And they have all kinds of math <laughs> and detail in their research paper and some examples. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. So if you're interested, you can go take a look. But it's an interesting thing. Since Adobe's involved, you have to assume that at some point, something out of this, it may not be this exact thing, but somehow Photoshop most likely, or maybe Lightroom, but probably Photoshop would get some benefit of having something a lot more extreme available in applying style from one photo to another. Yeah, this is, I mean, it was incredible, the the examples that they showed. I mean, it took this daylight photo and it just, it looked like a perfect blue hour. It even takes the, the 
the the you know the windows of buildings out in the city it makes it look like the lights are turned on in those yeah. windows uh, i mean it was really awesome but i the fact that they're showing this in a research paper tells me that this is many years from coming to photoshop yes, because right. if there were even a chance that this were coming in the next two years they wouldn't be telling anybody because right. they don't want to tip off the competition right oh yeah wait right. there isn't any competition Maybe that doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> but i all but i also wanted to point out that in photoshop elements not the full ver- version of photoshop but in photoshop elements there's a feature called photo merge style match that doesn't go nearly this far but it's been in in Photoshop Elements for years, and what you could do with that is, like, let's say you see somebody's photo that they've that they have, um, you know, photoshopped to have this real vintage, uh, crushed blacks kind of just old look to it, right? And you can take the style of that photo and have Photoshop Elements take that style and apply it to your photo on a totally different picture. It just tries to guess where all the sliders and everything should go to to make that. And it's actually pretty good. Uh, It does a pretty nice job of it. I'm actually a little disappointed that we don't see that in Photoshop CC. I can see why they wouldn't, that it just seems like not a professional tool. It's more of an amateur thing. But I don't know. It worked so well. I I, kind of like to have it sometimes. It was kind of cool. Yeah, even if it doesn't make it straight into Photoshop anytime soon, there's got to be good reason that Adobe's participating so much into this. And there there may be benefits that we'll see along the way, well short of this full implementation of this deep photo style thing. But I'd imagine we're gonna they're gonna have some improvements that can be maybe like spot healing will improve or whatever feature there might be. They they may have learned how to make some advancements in other areas of Photoshop besides this full implementation. Yeah. Well, it was definitely interesting. I enjoyed seeing it. I enjoyed seeing that in the news. Yeah. And also in further news, uh, Petapixel's reporting something about Instagram shadow banning, where basically photographers who have a following on Instagram but have been converted to a business profile, which it forces you to do sometimes, it will sometimes make it so your photos do not show up as as the photos that you've hashtagged just don't show up in search. Why would they want to do that? Because Facebook does not like small businesses. <laughs> you can't avoid it. It just doesn't. Uh, Facebook owns Instagram. Um, and a lot of Instagrammers are very upset at this. And, you know, it makes me mad too. I totally, totally understand the feeling. But at the same time, at this point, I kind of say, what did we expect from Facebook? Uh, Facebook has taken so much from small business over the last couple of years that uh, this uh, is sad, but unfortunately not unexpected news. I think the thing that was most disappointing was how they approached uh, addressing the concern. They they came out and said something to the effect of, we... we uh, you don't. You shouldn't use hashtags to promote your business. That's. You should have a better plan on content than hashtagging in order to find followers and uh, and promote your business. And that's just crazy because that's what Instagram is all about is hashtagging. That's just. Yep. It's insane that that's the position that they're taking. It's almost like, well, how else are you supposed to use your platform in order to attract followers and find have people find you? 
And uh, so I see a good reason why it is that people are upset, especially when it feels sort of underhanded. It feels like they're, they're not telling us everything about what's going on. It could be a glitch. It could be a bug in the, in the underlying software components that make up Instagram and that they don't even know why it's happening, but I doubt it just the way they responded down. No, it does. No, they, they're not, they had the chance to say this was not our intention and we're following up on it. And they didn't, they they said you shouldn't rely on hashtags. So that's not good. I, I, this definitely affects improved photography, just what Facebook is doing to small businesses. So, uh, you know, we have obviously a lot of, uh, you know, that's where our community is. That's where we do all our social engagement for improved photography is Facebook. And I have been actively looking for uh, several weeks, looking for what the next place is for our community to go. I've looked at all kinds of forum solutions to just put it on improvephotography.com because then we won't have to worry about this because we can control it. Uh, but it, forums stink, man. <laughs> forums <laughs> yeah. are pain. They're just, you got to register and they're just not fun. And so I, I'd love to hear suggestions. If somebody has good suggestions for where the improved photography community should move, uh, I, I'd love to see. I even wondered, you know, do we need to just build our own app and, and have our own social media thing <laughs> uh, so that we don't have to be messed with this again? But, but anyway, uh, it's interesting, and it definitely affects all photographers. You know, Instagram is, is the photo sharing app right now, and Facebook is the place where, where businesses are trying to communicate and and those are not working well for us. Well, um, lots of time has gone through already in 2017. And Jeff, you wanted to talk a little bit about top tens for the year. Yeah, and I, I think people, if they've listened to Photo Taco, they're going to feel like I'm a broken record on this topic. But we've had enough new listeners to Photo Taco already in the first part of this year. And uh, I don't think, I'm not sure if we talked about it much on improved photography here. So I wanted to bring up the, the one of the concepts I find to help me the very most to improve my photography year over year is this process of creating a top 10. And um, I, I do it through the whole year rather than waiting until the end. If you're going to do that, it's such a big task. It's, it's uh, almost not worth doing it if you didn't work on it through the year. But what I do is I, I use the, the collections feature in Lightroom to gather kind of my best photos as I am processing them through the year. So when I finish one that looks like that one's one of my best ones I've done so far this year, then I quickly put that into my collection for candidates, top 10 candidates. This year it's 2017, so top 10 2017 candidates. And, um, and then at the end of the year in December, I'll go through those. I'll end up with like 30 to 50 photos that are in there for candidates of being in the top 10. And then I, I have to go through and whittle it down to 10. And I do recommend you whittle it down to 10. You kind of have to pick your the ugliest of your babies <laughs> to do that. But it makes you have like a critical eye on your own photography. It's almost like you're doing, you're forcing yourself to do a really good job of a self-evaluated portfolio review. You can see what is it that I've done well? What is it that I should improve on? this photo is better than that one because of some technical thing or because of composition or whatever it might be. Or you can see, wow, my top, my best photos this year look exactly the same as my best photos last year. And that's a problem. So I wanted to bring it up now because if you haven't started doing that through the year, 
it's not too late. You're only three months into the year. You can probably go and pretty easily find your top 10 photos that you've taken so far in the first three months of the year. But um, get started on that as a really powerful way to improve your photography year over year. And in December, every year, uh, we started it last year, but I'll keep going every year over on Photo Taco and in our Facebook group, we, we will post our top 10s, get comments, get, get critiques, and try to get help and, and show maybe how you've improved over time. Uh, people got really excited about it this last year and, and how much they could see improvement in their, their photography. So I, I think it's a very powerful way to be able to help yourself and free. There's no cost to it. There's, it, it takes almost no time, especially if you do use the collections feature. And there's a thing called a target collection. And I talk about this on that photo taco episode where I outline top 10. Yeah. So you can specify any one of the collections that you create as a target collection. And then in the film strip view, there's this little bubble in the upper right hand corner that if you click on that bubble, it will add that photo to the target collection, like real fast or even faster. If you just hit B on the keyboard, hold on. It adds that photo to the target collection. I so, have never heard of this. So the workflow is so easy. When you're done processing a photo, you're like, yes, I nailed that shot. This is beautiful. I just hit B when I'm done, like the develop module, and it's added to the target collection, which Dang, I set up cool. to be my collection's 2017 collection. And then it's no, it's a no brainer at the end of the year in December. I, I don't even look through the year to see which photos I put in there in December. I can go see what they are. And, uh, it's, it's so fun to go okay, through it. It's, so let, let me, let me make sure I got this. This is cool. <laughs> I, it's, it's rare that I find something new in Lightroom. So this is exciting to me. Okay. So when I set, I, so I look at my collections in the left-hand panel while I'm in the develop module. Yep. I have a collection that I called webinar from a webinar that I did. And yep. so I right click it and I say set as target. Ooh, target it puts collection. a little plus next to it now. Yep. So yep. now when I click that little dot at the top right of the photos in the little film strip at the bottom of the photo of the screen. Well, pop, actually boom. that puts it in the quick collection, but oh, so wait, so how sorry. do I get it to the target collection? Hit B. B? Mm -hmm. B puts it in the target collection? Yep. Ah. Huh. Jeff, mind is blown. This is awesome. <laughs> it's so rare that I find something new in, in Lightroom. This is way cool. And it's so simple. So I walk through, it for, for listeners who may be wondering, I don't know how to set this up. I go in like huge amount of detail in, you can search photo, taco, uh, top 10, and I go through all the, the collections to set up, how you set them up, how you use them, all of the detail there. And uh, I've done it a few years now. I've done it probably four years in a row. And every, almost every year I've learned something to do differently, but I talk all through that too, about what it is to, to help you through this process. It's, it's really awesome exercise to do every year. Huh. Those, those people who, who talk about how they're in a photography rut, we were even talking with Nick about this this week. He kind of feels like he's in a rut. Uh, this is a really good way to observe that, see if you really are in a rut year over year. or And, and what is it? You can look at those and say, well, what am I going to do this next year to spice things up or change it? Or do I need to go into a different genre of photography? Something like that. It's just really powerful way to evaluate your, your photography. 
Very cool. And Lightroom's been making a lot of, of updates lately. Yeah, it, they have. So talking about the, the most recent update is the 2015.9. <laughs> it's still called 2015. 2015.9 slash 6.9. So the standalone version, that's still available. Uh, we'll see if it will be after in version 7, but still available as a standalone version 6.9. There's not really any functional updates in this one. It's mostly uh, camera and lens additions so that it will recognize those new cameras and new lenses, the profiles. Um, but there have, like always, we kind of recommend don't apply these updates. Even these dot releases have been problems in the past, have caused sometimes really big issues. So don't update until you kind of hear the all clear from us. I want to tell on this episode, I've had other listeners ask me and I decided I need to just do it in one of the podcast episodes that, yeah, that one is all clear. It's, it's working for the vast majority of people. It's not without some minor issues. There are some people who've had some problems. The good news is though, that the problems that have been reported either to me or in the Adobe forums, they seem to be resolved with something called a preferences reset. And um, it's a very simple process you can go through to sort of clear out your preferences which means you do lose them. You'll lose like your identity plate in Lightroom if you set that or your watermark or some of those, those settings that you might be that uh, have gone through and customized your preferences. Um, but it, it kind of gets you kind of cleaned up a nice starting point And that kind of resets Lightroom without losing your catalog or any edits or, or anything of real value within Lightroom. And that seems to have fixed most of these issues. The most common problem has been the film strip view, the thumbnails that get shown in the film strip, they get shown to be too big and they kind of overgrow their space in the film strip. Oh, that's odd. Uh, yeah, it is odd. It's uh, been most, it's on Mac OS. I don't think I've seen anyone report that on windows. So it's been a Mac OS specific problem, but not everyone on Mac OS. It's just, I don't know what's caused. I'm not sure the engineers know yet either, but if you do the preferences reset, then that seems to fix it. If you do have to do that, you have some weird thing and you want to try that, the preferences reset to see if it clears up your weird thing, then uh, the way to do that is you go to preferences and then presets and then you, uh, or sorry, before you do the preferences reset, then you want to make sure that you uncheck a box. Otherwise, you will also lose your user presets that you've set up for like applying presets to photos. And uh, that's preferences, presets, and you want to make sure the store presets with this catalog is not checked. And then your, your user preferences will be, or user presets will still be there. Ah, very cool. Well, there's so much we could talk about, but we better get to the doodads of the week. Yep. Um, the, what, uh, what's your doodad for us? What do you have? Okay, so I've been getting into keywording a lot more in Lightroom. Uh, I prepared a lot on that topic as we went to the retreat. I wanted to make sure I was very well uh, informed about all of the keywording capabilities in Lightroom. I'd used keywords, but I wanted to figure out how is it you can be a little faster with your keywording and uh, have a better strategy with it. And uh, I have discovered that there is a free list of keywords that you can get, which is one of the problems that photographers face with keywording overall. 
you're, you're, when you first install Lightroom, it's like empty. There's no keywords in there at all. Mm -hmm. And this provides you kind of a starting point on a good structure and organization and suggestions on what keywords you could add to a photo. So it becomes more of like a checklist of saying, yep, that's in this photo and that's in this photo and that's in this photo rather than a blank screen. <laughs> and you're thinking, well, what should I put as my keywords on this photo? So it's a free list. It's called the Lightroom Keyword List Project. And you can just download this simple little text file and import it into Lightroom. And it gives you a, a starting point, a basic starting point to, to go from on keywords that are very commonly used and helpful in your photos. Very cool. My doodad of the week is the Duracell Rechargeable 2500 milliamp. If you've been following the Improved Photography blog, you know exactly why that is. We had an awesome article go up this week from my buddy Brian Pex, and he did some in-depth testing on a variety of different batteries for speed lights. So he took a speed light on full one over one power, and he tried different batteries, and he just shot full power pops with the flash until it died, until there were no battery left. And the batteries that did the best were the Duracell rechargeable 2500 milliamps. They actually beat out the Eneloop Pro batteries, but just by a slight margin. But they're cheaper than the Eneloop Pro batteries as well. Significantly so, like a lot cheaper. The regular Eneloop batteries really didn't do very well in the test. That was surprising to me. Uh, I, I thought the Eneloop Pros would just be a little bit better than the Eneloops, and that wasn't at all the case. The regular Eneloops actually were not worth it. They were not even as good as the Amazon Basics batteries. Uh, the Eneloop Pros uh, were very close to the winner, uh, but the winner was the Duracell, which got 228 full pops from a flash. That is really impressive. I mean, a full power pop on a flash is a lot. It literally melted one of the batteries that was tested. <laughs> uh, the wrapper on it literally melted uh, from shooting 200 pops. Uh, but the uh, one of the batteries that didn't perform well melted, I should say. Uh, but anyway, great article. If you just search, you know, best batteries for speed lights, improve photography on Google, I'm sure you'll find it. Uh, Brian Pex's article was uh, really cool. Yeah, love those. I ordered them as soon as he had his article published. <laughs> yeah, it was really cool. Well, Jeff, it was good talking with you again, and we will see you in another seven days.